Hi, I'm Shinyi Pai, host of the podcast The Blue Suit. In a world full of stuff, what do we choose to hold on to? The Blue Suit is a podcast about commonplace objects and the people who transform them into something remarkable. From an inherited Chinese-English dictionary to an old caliphone playing records left behind by Japanese-Americans incarcerated during World War II, our podcast showcases modern-day artifacts of Asian America and what gets elevated to heirloom status. Find it by searching for The Blue Suit wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I want to tell you about the professional playwriting debut of Daniel K. Isaac, who's the actor that you might know from Billions and The Chinese Lady. Mayi Theatre Company presents Once Upon a Korean Time. Mixing traditional fables with the horrors of the Korean War, Daniel K. Isaac's epic new play is a funny and deeply moving analog for the experiences of the Korean-American diaspora. Isaac definitely moves his characters through time, tracing the legacies of trauma that are passed on from one generation to the next and the various coping mechanisms each one uses to soldier on. The show features sea kings, bubbles, tigers, generational trauma, and barbecue. Previews begin August 23rd at La Mama's Ellen Stewart Theater in New York City. It's a strictly limited engagement through September 18th only. Tickets are now available by visiting ma-yi-theater, with an R-E at the end, .org. Use the exclusive code Saturday for $30 tickets. That's $15 off regular admission. And it's valid through September 1st only. Check it out. I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Saturday School. This is our eighth season where we're talking about Asian American sci fi films. And it's been quite a season. I mean, it's, it took us a long time to get to this point. <laughs> this has been a long season. For those of you who have listened to us for a long time, you know that we're an Asian American pop culture history podcast and that we started doing this because we had covered Asian American film for a long time together. And in the beginning seasons, we were directing you to films that we really loved and wanted people to see. And then as we've been doing our later seasons, it's been a fun exploration for us because we're discovering a lot of stuff that we haven't seen and kind of carving out these seasons on the fly, especially with this season where I think we had just done a really heavy season last year about Asian American interracial cinema, you know, in the middle of a pandemic after the George Floyd protests at Atlanta spa shootings. And it was really heavy. And I think coming out of that, we wanted to do something lighter, but also something new, I guess you could say. And the idea of sci-fi being something about imagining new futures and imagining new possibilities. What's it going to be like coming out of the pandemic? Um, where we're just in this really, really strange place for Asian Americans, I think, where, you know, anti-Asian hate crimes are up, but also we have the most amazing movies like Fire Island. It's kind of a weird thing because I don't you can tell me if this is true for you, but for me, as someone who's been watching the Asian American film scene for so long, a lot of the stuff that's coming out right now is stuff that like you would like have dreamed to have back then, you know, but juxtaposed with these really complicated political issues and hate crimes. 
So we're like, okay, what is our future? What was it like when Asian Americans in the past had made these sci-fi films that imagined our future. Also, I think at this moment, a lot of folks are questioning the usefulness of Asian America as a category, mm. as a political category, as an organizing category. And I don't think it's about abandoning these categories, but maybe we need to retool them and reimagine how they can be used to bring folks together, both within our communities, but also in coalition with other communities. I don't know, it just seems like a nice time to sort of press reset and think about what else can be done. And I think the paradox here is we're going to look backwards <laughs> into the past to consider like, these are questions that have been asked for a very long time. And what are some propositions that have been brought up in the past that maybe we've filed away and let's bring it all back out. Um, maybe some more useful than others. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the fun thing about our podcast because you get both, right? You watch stuff from like, 30 years ago, and it's so inspiring that people were telling these kind of stories back then. And then you also think about it like, oh, wait, like, <laughs> are we telling those kind of stories now? Or how far have we gone since then? And I'm not even saying it's like a good or bad thing, but it's just fun to wonder if we were in another universe, right? Like, where would have these filmmakers and actors and creative people have been? I think we're hungry for sci-fi because, first of all, as we said in one of the early episodes, Asian American cinema has been so obsessed with realism, with this idea of authenticity. We need to tell our stories accurately. And these are also like the mantras of Asian American cinema. And for good reason, because we saw images of Asian Americans being so distorted by Hollywood. But that's so limiting, right? If all we could do is tell our own story, why can't we tell other stories? Why can't we tell stories of ourselves that haven't even happened yet or that may seem impossible? Why does Hollywood get to tell stories of like white people in outer space or time traveling? Whereas we have to be stuck in post-1965 immigration and the realities that it's brought upon us as we like have intergenerational conflict. Why can't we do more than that? Why can't we say more than like our classmates think our food is smelly? I mean, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with telling those stories, but that can't be all Asian American is. What else is out there? <laughs> and it's not just like filling in the gaps of these accurate stories that haven't been told yet. It's also, let's just make things up. Yeah, that's kind of the joy of being creative, right? And especially for a genre like sci-fi, where in Hollywood, that's been a place where there have been more people of color, there have been more Asian Americans in franchises like Star Trek or Battlestar Galactica yeah. or Star Wars. And that's really, really cool too. And shout out to our fellow Potluck Podcast Collective podcast, all the Asians on Star Trek and Marvel and Makeup, who do a great job covering that. But we were wondering, what does a sci-fi film look like when the Asian Americans are the directors, when they're at the helm of it? Yeah, and it's not just that we are hired as directors. It's sort of like we are the agent of imagination. We're the bizarre ones that came up with Laser Man. Yeah. <laughs> the film we talked about in episode three. <laughs> Greg Pak is the one who came up with... Fornicating office robots. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want Hollywood to tell the story about Asian American fornicating robots? Probably not. Absolutely not. <laughs> and we definitely don't want Hollywood to be the ones making the superhero movie about Lumpia. That should definitely be made by a Filipino-American director like Patricio Janelson. For sure, yeah. And so on. And we don't often think about these films in the sci-fi canon. And then I think because these films aren't necessarily about a real Asian America, sometimes they're forgotten within the Asian American canon too, mm. which is, I think, what's made this season so fun um, and, and challenging because 
we've really had to dig <laughs> into like films that weren't necessarily made for the big screen, like Future States, which was a series of short films made for television and the internet. Yeah, and I love that we did something like Two Lies, which I don't even know if Pamela and Tom would call it sci-fi. <laughs> but we also sort of found these films that feel like precursors to current sci-fi, all leading up to last week's episode, Jennifer Pong's Advantageous, where you kind of see a lot of these elements coming together. And I really love that the movie that we're talking about today is not even fiction. It's a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> today we're talking about the 2019 documentary Hope Frozen, A Quest to Live Twice by Pylan Waddell. It's so weird to hear you say the full title because when we first showed this film at the San Diego Asian Film Festival, when it first played the kind of festival circuit, it was just called Hope Frozen. Oh. Because Netflix ended up picking it up. I think it's got like the Netflix logo in the beginning too now. When I rewatched it this week in preparation for this episode, I noticed some changes to the movie. Oh, we should talk about this. There are changes that actually signal that this is a sci-fi movie <laughs> or like that they're anxious to put this in some kind of sci-fi category. And I think it's because Netflix realizes that's how you get audiences. I so Hope Frozen is a documentary about a family in Thailand, a mother, father, son, and daughter. The daughter's name is, they call her Eins. At some point she gets a pretty serious form of brain cancer. And I think everyone knows that she's not going to live very much longer. And she's very young. She's two. So like an adorable child in this family. And specifically, it's a family of scientists. So the dad is a scientist, and he's like very committed to science. The son, he's a teenager following in his dad's footsteps. So in sort of their like sadness about the daughter's imminent death, they start doing some research online. And they find out about this place in Arizona that cryogenically freezes people. And so that's what they're going to do. So the documentary is following this family as they're going through the process of not just cryogenically freezing their daughter, but then also explaining this to the rest of the world, what they're doing and justifying it, leading to all kinds of interesting cultural, religious, ethical questions. We're using cold as a way to maintain cellular viability. As future technologies develop, we may be able to come up with a cure for what they died of, or this may never work. We're all like, what? When you live sort of to transcend death, and also when you're kind of embracing these technologies of the future that we're not quite sure if we're ready for yet. So in some ways, it's a classic sci-fi scenario. And I was watching this thinking like, isn't this what like Bruce Banner's dad is doing in The Hulk or, or something similar? But what I love about this film is like, it's so, Pylon Waddell is a journalist. So she's kind of has this dispassionate tone to all this. She's like, I'm just gonna watch. I'm just gonna watch to see what this family does and how the world reacts. Yeah. Eins um, is the first person in Asia to undergo this procedure through this lab. And she's also the youngest, which is also very interesting. Because also, and this gets brought up, she's too young to know that one day she may wake up, she was cryogenically frozen. Like, she's too young to have made that decision for herself, which is another, like, question that gets brought up. Right, right. Because 
she was the first it gets a lot of international media attention so you see this press tour that the dad has to go through but then the other interesting part of the documentary is that because they are scientists it's not just about doing this procedure for the daughter they're actively trying to be involved in finding this cure speeding up this technology because it's basically like a race against their lifetimes the father and mother believe that the technology will probably not be ready in their lifetimes but their teenage son matrix by the way we should mention his name is matrix matrix i know (laughs) it's amazing their teenage son matrix also kind of inherits this quest in a way because he's the one who wanted a little sister loved the little sister you know now it's like is he gonna be the one to help bring her back to life my biggest motivation is my sister the question, how close are we to bring her back? It's kind of beautiful. The way it's told is about love and family, and this family grieving, and this family trying to do the best for their daughter, give the daughter a chance at life. It's interesting you say they're grieving, because in some ways, this is the way to not grieve. It's sort of like, is the daughter actually dead? She's pronounced dead. But to them, they may one day see her, especially the teenage son. I mean, at one point he says, maybe like in 30 years, we'll have the technology to be able to like unfreeze her. And now medicine is now able to fix this cancer or just like cure this cancer. Like, why don't we give her a chance? Because if you think about it, like 40 years ago, we never would have imagined the kinds of scientific breakthroughs and medical breakthroughs that we have today. They all look at what we have today and think about this, some kind of weird sci-fi future. So it's not unfathomable that somebody in 2018 or whatever this is happening is imagining 40 years from now that, you know, my two-year-old sister can live again. I will be in my 50s and she will still be two, but we'll worry about that when we get there. Yeah, I mean, that's where it kind of brings up a lot of philosophical and interesting religious questions. One, it's like, I mean, I think they are grieving, but are they grieving not being able to see her or grieving eternal death? What are they grieving? Right? It's a little bit tricky. And the, the hope, it's the hope that's frozen, right? right? But then they're Buddhist. So if you believe in reincarnation, are you trapping her? And what I think is fascinating about the film, specifically in context of our season is that this is a documentary, but it's about this future. And I'm sure people bring their judgment, but at the end of the day, we don't know what's going to happen in 50 years. (laughs) I mean, our notions of ethics might change as well. And it's sort of like when this is in the realm of fiction, we can kind of let things slide. Like, oh, let's just bracket off that potential unethical quandary. But because this is a documentary, it's kind of hard to to not think about the fact that you're basically forcing your daughter to become a time traveler one day, to like go into the future and wake up and be like, where am I? When am I? If it was just fiction, it'd be like, cool, let's just see it happen. <laughs> right? And it'll be like fish out of water comedy or something more distressing than that. But because it's a documentary, they have to reckon with all of it. And I don't know, like that's still part of the fun of speculation. It's just that there's a real family involved. Yeah. So I think Netflix realized, or Netflix or whoever made these changes for Netflix realized that there is some kind of sci-fi grounding in all of this because in this Netflix version, it begins with clips of old movies or something, like some kind of like Frankenstein-ish black and white movie. Oh, and that wasn't in the original. That was not in the original. And there was like some kind of, I wrote down the narration of something like, nobody has solved the problem of death. <sighs> this is not in the original. The original starts with this very somber, reflective scene in front of a fish aquarium where the dad is recounting the possibility of like reviving dead fish. 
That's how the original began. But now like it inserts this sort of like reference to sci-fi movies. And then I think I wrote this on like 16 minutes in <laughs> to the Netflix version because I was so surprised to see this. There's like a montage of news segments, like news magazine segments, like Vice type clips of American commentators in English talking about, oh, all these Americans want to live forever or all these people like experimenting to live forever grounding it in a sort of like us wanting to live in the future or us wanting to like use science to live forever or something like to kind of sensationalize it in the way that we often think about sci-fi is kind of sensational because the rest of the movie is not that sensational it's just sort of like reflective and meditative yeah yeah i love that tone of the film so i'm not critiquing the netflix version but it's interesting that those are the kinds of things that they're adding in as if to sort of add whether it's the fiction element or the like element of like trying to break the system in order to live forever most of the film is just, like you said, watching this family go through the process. It's actually really interesting that way because I didn't know that much about cryogenics. <laughs> and there's this scene where... Well, okay, they don't show the scene where the daughter is frozen, but we know that the family was there watching it happen right after she was declared officially dead. Yeah, when they were explaining how that worked, I was like, you did what? Oh my god, I know. After your daughter dies, you step into the room to watch something you've probably never imagined before. Yeah. It must be like normal to scientists and doctors, right? But then to kind of have to go from very personal, emotional grief to like, okay, and now here's how we're going to make this scientific procedure work. They mercifully don't even spell out like what they did. We just have to use our imaginations. But then there's another scene where they come to Arizona and they visit. Most people think it's going to be really cold in here. They think liquid nitrogen minus 196 degrees Celsius. Oh my god, that's my favorite scene. That's the scene that made me wonder, like, is this a kind of grief? Or like, are they inventing a new kind of experience of grief? Even though it was had this confusing futuristic element to it, it also sort of felt like just visiting a grave, right? That's yeah. Their version of visiting their daughter's grave to visit the ginormous tank that their daughter's been frozen in. I mean, it looked like you were at a brewery or something. <laughs> I know, it looked like a brewery. And then in one of the silver tanks that does not have beer in it, they put a picture of her and they leave her a card and talk to her through it. Right. Is it like they're talking to the dead or they're talking to somebody in a limbo space? It's almost like you're praying to a ghost or something. <laughs> I think people talk about how people might have desires of what happens to their body when they die. But practically speaking, really, like, it's the people who are left behind. That's what they can hold on to to grieve in a way, right? Like whether it's like an urn or whether it's a grave site or a um, cryogenics lab in Arizona, right? It's still kind of the same thing for mm -hmm. them. It's about giving their daughter a chance at life. But you also kind of can think of it as like, this is what they need to get through this. Part of that is channeling it into their faith in, not necessarily an afterlife, but a faith in science. Yeah. Like the dad and son are, part of what makes this such a beautiful story is like how much they believe the science will eventually get there. Despite like people coming up to them and saying like, eh, maybe not. <laughs> like Chances are pretty slim. They're like, nope, it can happen. But you also see the son tested. The science is their religion. Totally. The science is helping them understand the unknowable, yeah. while the science itself is kind of unknowable. Yeah. But then there's also scenes of them at a temple, and their actual religion, Buddhism, helps them cope as well. The story is incredible. <laughs> and th I mean, this, this family is incredible. I don't care what I'm saying. I'm not a person who doesn't know 
ัดใจและยึดติดอยู่กับตรงนี้ผมไม่แคร์เพราะว่าผมเป็นอย่างนั้นจริงๆผมตัดใจไม่ได้So you were saying that when you showed this film at the San Diego Asian Film Festival, that you had a surprise guest, and Matrix was there. Matrix showed Please up. Please tell me about that. The one. <laughs> of course, this is a science fiction film. His name is Matrix. Uh, it was so cool for him to be at the screening because, in some ways, like he's the protagonist, right? Like it's not Eins. Like she's absent from this movie. Matrix is the one that's. This unlocks his destiny, mm. realizing this is his calling. Yeah. Which even if he doesn't see his sister ever again, this might lead him to a life of science and of medicine and research. At least that's what the film seems to be suggesting, and it seems to be suggesting that his father's a scientist. But really, we're handing it off to you now, Matrix. <laughs> I know. So it is also a generational. Yeah. And luckily, it never, it never feels like guilt. It never feels like, oh, my dad wants me to do this, and I have to do it. Because you get the sense of how much he loves his sister. Yeah. This isn't about my obligation to my dad. It's not edible. No, it's it's a quest. But yeah, he was at our screening, and people had tons of questions for him. I mean, like in some ways, he's a holy figure. Right? It's like, tell us, like how how do you have this kind of faith and like drive? How can we live the way you do? And also a purity, right? A purity of of mission. Yeah. Okay. So the film, you kind of because there's also home videos. You see him from I think he's probably like a preteen when his sister is born, and then by the end of it, I think he's probably in high school, right? Yeah. So I know documentaries take a long time. So once he came to your screening, was he like eighteen-ish? He's probably eighteen-ish. Okay. He was, you know, like I mean, he he has a certain kind of charm to him because of what we've just watched in the film. Everyone was kind of you know like in love with Matrix. <laughs> But did anything change in between where we left off in the film and when he was doing the Q and A, or was uh, his mission still intact? It was still intact. Like that was what he wanted to do. Oh, I love it. That hasn't changed. Hopefully, it hasn't since this film came out four years ago. How come、um, Matrix doesn't really have an accent, right? So is he based in Thailand or is he in America? I I don't know if I have and if I know the answer to that. I don't think we asked him this. Um, but in the film, we see him with his classmates, and they're in Thailand. I think that they go to some kind of international school. Is my guess. I think they have money too. This family. Well, I mean, it costs like hundreds of thousands of dollars to cryogenically freeze at least the entire body. I don't remember. You can freeze the whole body, or just freeze the head, or just freeze the brain. I believe. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't if if anyone if anyone go onto their website. Yeah, go on the website <laughs> to fact check this, please. To get a quote. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, this is not cheap. Right, so I think that they're kind of a worldly family to begin with.、Mm-hmm. That was my understanding, and Matrix seems to embody this kind of like future Thai citizen of the world. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that like at some point they just fly out to San Francisco, he's like talking to cutting edge scientists about. Oh this, yeah, that's right. It's kind of like a jet set bicultural kind of future, and perhaps like it, it takes that kind of cooperation between you know researchers around the world in order to find the cure. And so all of this is like having me wonder, like, is this film appropriate for our podcast, which is about Asian Americans or Asian American stories? We've bended a lot of rules this season, which seems on brand with the season. Exactly, like it takes us back to our second episode on Namjoon Pike, 
was sort of like, should we be including Namjoon Pike in an Asian Americans series? And why not? I mean, he's not not Asian American, <laughs> right? As we right. said that. And so, Hope Frozen to me seems like it's not not Asian American. Yeah. First of all, Pilot Model is a Thai American filmmaker. Thai American perspective. So I think automatically we could perhaps say like there's some kind of this one doesn't really look like other Thai documentaries that I've seen. Perhaps that comes from her authorship. But most intriguing to me <laughs> is that. This is one of the weirdest immigration movies one can imagine. <laughs> because when this sister wakes up 40, 50 years from now, she'll be in Arizona. Yeah, Thai American immigrant. I don't know how this works in terms of citizenship. or I mean, for all we know, 40 years from now, America won't exist anymore. <laughs> so, like, so these questions that we're asking, like, what is the nationality of this cryogenically unfrozen person is maybe completely moot. Uh, but I feel like Namjoon Pipe would just cherish all of these like wild questions that we're asking of citizenship because he's all about like being global to begin with. So I think we were suggesting that maybe we should be including global imaginations as Asian American futures. I feel like Ainz kind of fits that <laughs> potentially. When she wakes up one day, she's like, what century am I in? <laughs> like, am I in Arizona? I mean, she's gonna be two <laughs> she'll be two but, like, <laughs> two but it'll be like the year 2080 but also if we're not sure if she's dead or not then she's already living here she's been in america for at least like four or five years does she qualify for a green card is she sponsored by this lab <laughs> i mean these are all kind of like laughable questions but that's the magic of sci-fi maybe we're so bound by these mundane questions Mundane, but also kind of important questions of like citizenship that are so key to Asian American imagination that we cut off other bizarre possibilities that we might have to think about in futures that are driven by technologies that we don't even have yet. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's kind of the fitting final episode to the season because we're sort of like planting seeds that we don't even know how to harvest yet. <laughs> Which was kind of how Saturday School started. <laughs> you mean back in, what, like, 2016, whatever it was? Well, a lot has happened since since Saturday School began. A lot has happened since we were like, let's start a podcast going through Randall Park short films. <laughs> and also a lot has happened in Asian American cinema since then, This right? was pre-Crazy Rich Asians. And so we're sort of like, hey, if we want to embrace Asian American cinema. The only way to do it is to resurrect the archive. And part of it was like, people probably think that we can't sustain a podcast like this because they think that there's not that many Asian American films. But hey, we're on season eight. Honestly, I think there's films that we love that we haven't even covered just because they don't fit into a category. There are so many really obvious Asian American films we have not talked about. Yeah. And I'm not, we're not going to name what they are right now because you have to keep, <laughs> you have to keep going back. So do we, I guess. <laughs> this season in particular, it was kind of like, can we do a season on? Asian American sci-fi and we didn't actually know? When we first planning the season, this was in 2021, <laughs> um, we had written at the end of the season, we could talk about these brand new movies that, you know, like maybe they'll be noteworthy <laughs> called Everything Everywhere All at Once and After Yang. In these months, we all saw Ham Tran release Micah, which is a Vietnamese sci-fi film, which again, is not Asian American, but he did a English language dub featuring a lot of Asian Americans. I also want to shout out, this is Asian-Canadian documentary called Artificial Immortality, which is a sci-fi family movie. <laughs> really interesting if anyone wants to check that one out too. And yeah, I feel like we're kind of in a moment, an Asian-American sci-fi moment. 
And it's kind of serendipitous that we had decided to do this season on sci-fi. We hope you enjoyed this sci-fi journey. This has been a fun season. We didn't even know where I was going. We didn't. <laughs> and we don't know where we're going next. We don't know what next season's going to be yet. But we'll see you in the future. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that feature stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our logo is by Grace Tallis Lee. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is WakeUpSatSchool. Class dismissed. Hi, I'm Marvin. And I'm Rira. And we're the hosts of Books and Boba, a book club and podcast dedicated to books by Asian and Asian American authors. Each month, we pick a book by an Asian author to read and discuss on the show. We read a variety of genres, including contemporary and historical fiction, sci-fi and fantasy, romance and cozy mysteries, and so much more. Our past book club picks have included Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, Patron Saints of Nothing by Randy Ribeye, Grace of Kings by Ken Liu, and The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang. Every month, we also go through the latest news in Asian American literature, as well as chat with some awesome Asian authors about their works. So whether you want to start reading for fun again or diversify your TBR list, we got your Asian literature cravings covered. For more info, check out our website at booksandboba.com, and you can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. 